Why Do We Sound So Good? Because we're at Dead Aunt Thelma's studio and Mike Moore is engineering for us. Thanks, Dead Aunt Thelma's. Thanks, Mike. Hi, everybody. I'm Susanna Mars, and welcome to Adventures in Artslandia. Today, I'm talking to Earl Showerman, a lover of Shakespeare and a trustee of the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, a nonprofit educational organization that is dedicated to investigating the Shakespeare authorship question and disseminating the evidence that Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, born 1550, died 1604, is the true author of the poems and plays published under the pseudonym William Shakespeare. Thanks for being here, Earl. Oh, thank you very much for having me. You retired from a 30-year career in medicine, and you moved to Ashland and became enthralled with the question of Shakespearean authorship after your move. Why? Well, I actually moved there in 1974. So uh, I was living in Ashland and working at Providence Medical Center in Medford, And uh, several of the employees of the hospital were uh, volunteers at the Shakespeare Festival and convinced me that I should put on a red coat and start volunteering for attending their their place. You got to attend for nothing. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty exciting. And after seeing three or four productions that really were stunningly... uh, imaginatively, beautifully done, I realized that this was a, a community of uh, artists that I always wanted to follow. And so I pretty much have gone to almost every production for the last 40 plus years. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, community resource. And it was dedicated by the Governor Tom McCall, actually, in his speech in which he dedicated the Bomer Theater, the, their 600-seat indoor theater, was one of the most outstanding speeches uh, I've ever heard from my... And he foresaw the great uh, productions that would be forthcoming, and they've won two Tony Awards since then. Yes, so it's, it's a marvelous a, organization. A marvelous, yes. Now, can you define what we're talking about, this question of authorship of the Shakespeare canon? Well, it's a, a longstanding question of challenge to the authorship attribution, and it really became very much more into the modern American culture since the mid-80s, 1980s, with Charlton Ogborn's book, The Mysterious William Shakespeare. Following that, there was a frontline program called The Shakespeare Mystery, uh, uh, written and directed by Al Austin, who was uh, using Ogborn's book as his source. And that provoked a lot of interest in the Shakespeare authorship question. And since the late 80s, uh, we've had a number of books published on this, and the organizations have been uh, uh, very committed to investigating further the the trail of, of this question. And the, and the primary problem is the lack of documentary evidence uh, attaching the man from uh, Stratford, Will Shakespeare, to the actual writing of the works. We know, and everyone accepts the fact, that he was a member of the Lord Chamberlain's men and later the King's men, that he was a shareholder in the Globe Theater, and that he definitely uh, earned quite a bit of resources from his experience there, moved back to Stratford in the late 1590s, and bought the second finest house in town, uh, was known there as a grain dealer and a land trader and uh, uh, mostly commercial uh, uh, documents we have. But we don't have anything really that attaches him to the actual writing of the works. One of the areas of particular interest is Shakespeare's will. 
there's no mention of books in the will. There's no mention of a desk or musical instruments or maps or the kinds of things you would expect a writer to have uh, mentioned in his will. There is a mention of uh, commemorative rings that he donates money for, for James Burbage, uh, John Hemmings, and uh, Condell, who were uh, associates with the Lord Chamberlain's men and the King's men. And Hemmings and Condell were in, involved in the creation of the first folio, which was put together seven years after Shakespeare's death. So there's some association there, but those, that was an interpolation between the lines added at some time after the will was originally written. Well, why do you think it's important that we know who actually wrote this canon? And why would certain people of that day want the work to be attributed to him? Okay, well, I, I would say that the benefit of knowing who wrote the works uh, challenges the whole question of literary biography. Mm -hmm. If Shakespeare's life isn't important to us in terms of how it affected his writing, who is, you know? And so I think that's one of the primary interests that we have is to try to understand the mind of the author. Uh, the The problem is the... Is the uh, it's also a question of politics. Uh, there is political content within these uh, plays that are cha challenges authority. For instance, uh, Polonius in Hamlet is commonly thought to be, by many scholars, to be a parody of Lord Burley, William Cecil, who was Elizabeth's prime minister and treasurer, uh, and also the father-in-law of the Earl of Oxford. Mm. So there's a family connection there that intrigues us in that regard. And what was the author's motive in mocking his uh, father-in-law? Certain precepts that he issues to Laertes uh, of, of parallels almost verbatim the precepts that he uh, published posthumously for Shakespeare uh, uh, re regarding advice to a young man. Um, he was also called a fishmonger, and Lord Burley uh, tried to get the Parliament to pass a measure to forcing people to eat fish twice a day, among other things. And he sends Reynaldo to spy on his son, uh, uh, Laertes, in Paris. Well, Lord Burley actually sent a spy to spy on his son when he was a student in Paris as well. So the parallels in a play like Hamlet are quite fascinating. Mm. The other play that particularly interests me is A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is going to be in production this coming season at the Oregon Shakespeare. Festival, there is a political allegory in the relationship between Bottom and Titania that exactly parallels the relationship between Queen Elizabeth and the French Duke d'Alencon, who was her final suitor in, uh, over a period of 10 years that there was negotiations going on between them. But the number of details that are contained within the play that parallel their relationship, including the use of a love potion, is fascinating uh, to me, and uh, I think that there are, there's a political content, a satirical political content of the works that we miss when we don't acknowledge the fact that Shakespeare had the poetic license that, we, that most scholars are not willing to acknowledge. So more than 80 candidates have been proposed as authors of this canon. That shows you the hunger to know the author, it seems to me. So why for you, well, uh, the Earl of Oxford? He's achieved notoriety over the last hundred years since the publication of Shakespeare Identified. Originally, Francis Bacon was put forth as the most likely candidate in the early authorship writers writing in the turn of the century. But in 1920, uh, J. Thomas Loney published Shakespeare Identified, which pointed out all the parallels between the Earl of Oxford's life and the elements within the canon. Oxford was a man of the theater. He had a boys' company that performed at court and at Blackfriars. He owned the, the uh, license to uh, have plays at Blackfriars for several years. He had an adult acting company. He had a, a company of musicians and acrobats. He was definitely into, into theater culture. 
Uh, he traveled throughout Europe, uh, France, Italy, and Germany. He uh, spoke numerous foreign languages, including Italian, French, and most likely he spoke Greek. He did attend the Greek church when he was in Venice during the year of his residency uh, in Italy. And uh, so there is a variety of reasons that we think the Earl of Oxford is a far superior candidate to every other candidate that's been put forth. The one of the questions that does come up has to do with the dating of the plays and the fact that it seems that some people have dated, some scholars have dated the Tempest and other places after the death of the Earl of Oxford. Well, that could be true, but also Shakespeare, uh, had, there were 18 plays that were unpublished at the time Shakespeare died. So when were those plays written? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of controversy over the dating of the plays that challenges Oxfordian thinking sometimes, but I do think that looking at the summary of arguments that there's really no other candidate that uh, meets the criteria that he does in terms of the vast uh, associations he has with the canon, with his literary people dedicating works to him. For instance, uh, uh, John Lilly and Anthony Munday, Robert Greene, are all thought to have written works that influenced Shakespeare. Well, all three of those authors dedicated works to the Earl of Oxford. Uh, Thomas Watson, another person who, who wrote a Shakespeare uh, source, is considered a Shakespeare source, also dedicated works to the Earl of Oxford. He was a leader of a literary circle that promoted euphuism, which is the underlying language style that you find in Love's Labor's Lost. And it's an elaborate prose style that is layered with uh, puns and, and uh, various rhetorical devices and uh, very thick with classical illusions. And it was a style of writing that he promoted and a number of the plays do reflect that style of writing. So for a variety of reasons, he seems to me to be the best candidate. Why would he suppress his identity as the pseudonym, pseudonymous author? Well, there was a, uh, uh, a culture in which publishing your own poetry was almost forbidden among the uh, nobility. Uh, Philip Sidney did not publish his works during his lifetime. It was his sister who published his works posthumously. He preferred to have it circulating in manuscript. And so the idea that a nobleman would claim credit for writing plays for the popular stage would seem to be beneath the status of someone with, of that rank. And of course, many writers were writing pseudonymously at that time. Almost every writer had a pseudonym. So the amount of knowledge necessary to write this breadth of work yes. is incredible <clears throat> to even wrap your mind around. And Shakespeare is said to have had only a second grade education. Well, I think that underserves uh, the truth uh, that he actually probably did go to the grammar school and did have a Latinate education and did read some of the Latin classics. There's no question in my mind that he would have been exposed to those things. But the uh, the depth of which this is understood. See, a, a school like Stratford might have had one copy of Ovid's Metamorphoses. We don't have any evidence that they, it did possess that. But most of the grammar schools that uh, we have inventories for had perhaps one copy of some of the books that, that, that Shakespeare would use as his sources. Uh, and one of the great challenges that has fascinated me, of course, is the uh, use of Greek dramatic sources. Did Shakespeare know the Greek drama? Did he know Aeschylus? Did he know Sophocles and Euripides and Aristophanes? And the collective uh, opinion over the past hundred years has been no. He did not know the Greek canon because those plays had not been translated or published in England during his lifetime. There were three plays, Iphigenia at Aulis, uh, uh, Hecuba, 
and uh, Antigone that were translated by scholars at Cambridge and uh, uh, Oxford University, which was which were Greek centers of knowledge. But this was not a popular item that was published in, in England. And so we know that certain plays, for instance, um, uh, The Winter's Tale and Much Ado About Nothing, the final scenes are dependent on Euripides' Alcestis, where the queen offers to sacrifice herself to die for her husband, is rescued from death by Hercules, and delivered to her husband as, as a veiled, uh, uh, unknown woman at the very end. Similar, very similar to Much Ado About Nothing. And a handful of scholars have been taking up the idea of Greek sources in Shakespeare. There's no question in my mind that East Calissa's Oresteia and Euripides' Orestes plays uh, influenced uh, both Macbeth and Hamlet. I think there's a number of scholars over the years that have made anecdotal comments on this, but I do think that Shakespeare uh, was well aware and very much stimulated by the Greek model, which has pretty much been ignored by most of 20th century scholarship. There so is, do you think it's yeah. humanly possible that one person would have this amount of information in order to write this canon? Well, the response of the Academy at this point is to, particularly Oxford University Press, they have recently published, a couple of years ago, a new, new edition of, of the complete works of Shakespeare, including a companion edition, which points out there's likely to have been, based on stylometric criteria developed by computer analyses, that there could be as many as seven, eight, or nine co-authors to the works of Shakespeare, and that perhaps these are the people who helped influence him in terms of his classical knowledge, knowledge of the law, knowledge of medicine, because they had special training in those areas. Um, and uh, they, rec- they suggest that Christopher Marlowe perhaps helped write Henry VI plays, George Wilkins, Thomas Middleton. Uh, uh, there, were, there were a handful of uh, authors during that time that were considered possible co-authors. But we have no documentary evidence that that ever occurred, and it's incredibly controversial. Uh, Oxford University has put this down as, as their uh, opinion, but a number of other Shakespeare scholars uh, are, have challenged that, that, that their model. Their model does not account for the fact that over the course of a writer's lifetime, his style may change. He may copy other writers' styles. He may intentionally parody or mimic another writer's style to make a point. Uh, And so I think that the idea that we can use computer models to uh, deconstruct the works of Shakespeare, to basically say that a third of the works he did not write is a mistake. I do think ultimately almost all the content of the plays were written by one man. You do. I do. I do not think a woman wrote these plays. And as much as I admire... Shakespeare's women, and they are an admirable lot. I mean, and even the ones that are powerfully evil, like Lady Macbeth, uh, are written with such understanding and uh, acknowledgement of the female uh, agency that it's quite fascinating. Euripides, who is a, a, a very obviously to me a, a good Shakespeare source, and Professor Tanya Pollard at Brooklyn College published a book last year called um, Greek Tragic Women on Shakespearean Stages, and it won the Roland Bainton Award, which is uh, the highest award that one can win in Shakespeare studies, it seems to me. She uh, acknowledged that Euripides clearly influenced Shakespeare's women, very much so. And of course, John Lilly, who was uh, uh, the Earl of Oxford's secretary, he wrote commendably well about uh, interesting, fascinating, powerful women. So if the Earl of Oxford did write these plays, yes. how was he so insightful about so many things, including women? Well, uh, he had children by three different women. So I would say he had intimate relations with a number of women in that regard. He was a favorite of the queen for a number of years until he uh, impregnated one of her maids of honor while he was estranged from his wife. 
after which he was placed in prison for a while, uh, kind of like the story of Measure for Measure, where there's an, a, a pregnancy that results in somebody going to prison for a while. And he was banished from court for the next several years and then finally restored after he reconciled with his wife and went on to have uh, more daughters. He had three daughters, much like King Lear did. Uh, the youngest daughter married the Earl of Montgomery, uh, Philip, uh, and he was one of the co-dedicatees of the first folio, along with his older brother, uh, the Earl of uh, Pembroke, who uh, was engaged at one time to another daughter of the Earl of Oxford. So it seems to me the family connections are uh, fascinating and difficult to explain. What was his growing up? He was lived uh, initially uh, probably under the care of Sir Thomas Smith, one of the great Greek orators and uh, legal experts, and and uh, he wrote the uh, uh, English Common Prayer Book, uh, and he lived in his household for an undetermined period of time until he was 12 when his father died. And then uh, from the age of 12 till he was 21, he lived in Cecil House in London un- as a ward of the court under the uh, uh, care of William Cecil, who became his father-in-law. So I think he was educated uh, by the highest, uh, you know, achieving uh, intellectuals of that age. He was in the household that had more political activity going on it than any other. So his awareness of politics, his awareness of court activities, his uh, interest in music. He was an acknowledged great musician um, uh, by John Farmer. He received a dedication from Farmer uh, who, who said that he was as good as any professional musician. So, uh, of course, Shakespeare had a great love of music. There was more music in Shakespeare than you'll find in any other uh, period writer. So. so I'm curious if you think that the authorship question has been sidelined in Britain due to tourism uh, in Stratford? Well, the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust in Stratford are the most outspoken critics of the authorship challenge. Uh, Several years ago, 2013, they published a book, Shakespeare Beyond Doubt, and a group of uh, scholars from both Great Britain and America published another book called Shakespeare Beyond Doubt with a question mark after it, challenging that. So we know that there's a great concern that has uh, come along since the film Anonymous was released uh, in 2011, I think. Um, and since that time, there's been two great documentaries that have been produced. One of them is available at, at PBS. It's called Last Will and Testament. And most recently, just this year, Nothing is Truer Than Truth was released uh, on uh, Hulu and Amazon Prime. So it's available for, for your viewers to see, which looks particularly at the question of Shakespeare's Italy. How did Shakespeare know so much about the geography and the culture and the language of Italy and use uh, untranslated Italian sources in his plays? Well, the Earl of Oxford spent a year in Italy and lived in Venice, we know, attended a church that I believe is the same church where the uh, man who is probably the model for Shylock in The Merchant of Venice attended also. So I think the topical references to Italy is a very powerful argument, and Cheryl Egan Donovan's film, Nothing is Truer Than Truth, kind of goes into that in greater detail. One of the questions that comes up that Shakespeare scholars criticize Shakespeare for is that he didn't know Italian geography. How can you go from two inland cities, from Verona to Milan by boat, as occurs in Two Gentlemen of Verona? Well, some research by Richard Paul Rowe and other scholars subsequently have revealed that there was a river and canal system that actually most of the transport between those urban centers, inland urban centers, was by boat and barge through these rivers and canal systems. So Shakespeare was actually reflecting the geographical reality where scholars who criticize him for being mistaken are actually unaware of the fact that that was the means of transportation in Italy at that time. There are many, many famous Oxfordians that we've talked a little about, and some people might be interested to know one of them is Chris Coleman, formerly of Portland Center Stage. 
That's correct. I met Chris Coleman when he uh, conference at Concordia University. Uh, at the time, he signed the Declaration of Reasonable Doubt. I had I watched him sign it. So so he uh, has been curious about this. And he did produce uh, Amy Freed's play, The Beard of Avon, at yes. Center Stage uh, seven or eight years ago. So it was it, he's definitely to be counted. Paul Nicholson, the former executive director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, was also a believer that the Earl of Oxford is a more credible candidate. For the for the attribution than Will Shakespeare from from Stratford. So we have uh, within the arts community a number of actors uh, that are really interested in this, including Derek Jacobi, uh, Mark Rylance, uh, Vanessa Redgrave, uh, Jeremy Irons, and Michael York. They've all expressed doubt. Oh, John uh, Gilgood. Uh, they were they were all convinced that there might be a problem here. I was particularly intrigued by Malcolm X's quote. that I read on the website. The King James translation of the Bible is considered the greatest piece of literature in English. They say that from 1604 to 1611, King James got poets to translate to write the Bible. Well, if Shakespeare existed, he was then the top poet around. But Shakespeare is nowhere reported connected with the Bible. If he existed, why didn't King James use him? Well... If you're the Earl of Oxford and you died in 1604, perhaps you weren't available. Right. The interesting thing about the Earl of Oxford is that he did have a Bible. He did have a Geneva Bible, which is at the at the Folger Shakespeare Library. And Roger Strittmatter got his PhD thesis by looking at the annotations, the underlineations, and the manicules, little hands that were painted on uh, in the columns and the marginalia of that, and pointed out 200 new biblical allusions that had not previously been acknowledged within Shakespeare by looking at the, the Bible and cataloging those those passages uh, and then associating them with passages within the plays. So uh, Earl of Oxford's Geneva Bible could be the closest closest thing we have to a smoking gun. <laughs> now, there were people contemporaneous with Shakespeare who doubted the traditional attribution that was established with the publication of the first folio in 1623, which referred to thy Stratford Monument, because we know there was a monument in, Shakespeare, in, in Stratford-upon-Avon, and referred to him as the, as the Swan of Avon. Well, Avon was also the, the title for Hampton Court, where plays were performed before the court. So that could have been, you say, the Swan of Avon, you might be actually referring to the poet that wrote plays to be performed at the royal court. And we actually have more evidence that Shakespeare's plays were performed at court than on the public stage. Hmm. Only about half the plays were ever pre- uh, performed by the Lord Chamberlain's Men or the King's Men, but we know a number of plays uh, were performed at court. And when King James came to the throne, they had a Shakespeare festival. Uh, that was the year that the Earl of Oxford died, but they produced seven Shakespeare plays at court during the uh, uh, first uh, season, the uh, festival season uh, that King James was at court. So I think there's a lot of evidence here that there's a fascination with Shakespeare, there's a problem with the traditional attribution, and I think the Earl of Oxford offers the simplest and most direct solution to the question. Well, we could talk for hours about this. It's fascinating. You are a wealth of information. It's such a delight to talk to you. Really appreciate your coming. Oh, thank you, Susanna. And I want to know that your listeners should know that in the fall, in October, we're going to have a Shakespeare Authorship Conference in Ashland. We'll be attending uh, productions of The Tempest and A Midsummer Night's Dream. And also we'll have a a pre-conference seminar on Bring Down the House, the two-part adaptation of Henry VI, Part 1 through 3, performed by the Upstart Crow Theater 
Theater, uh, all women's cast. So we're going to have a big fall festival in Ashland in uh, late September, early October. And if your listeners are interested, they should go to the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship website. There will be postings on that. Right. That's ShakespeareOxfordFellowship.org. And Shakespeare is spelled S-H-A-K-E-S-P-E-A-R-E. Oxfordfellowship.org, and you can learn so much more about what the Oxfordian point of view is, and lots of videos and movies, and it's it's really a fascinating subject. We also have a podcast that has been developed this last year. Mm-hmm. It is called Don't Quill the Messenger, and it's posted on Dragon Wagon Radio, and there's about 20 episodes posted on that. So if your listeners are curious, they can go and learn more about this particular question uh, through podcasting that we've created this year. Great. Well, you were brought to my attention by Bella Showerman, your beautiful granddaughter who works at Artslandia, and so I thought we'd give her a special shout-out. Yes, thank you, Bella. She's great. She was one of my, the first family convert I made. Yes. She, she came to hear me speak at Concordia, and we had a grand time. She, she is so proud of you, I, and uh, she's a wonderful young woman. Uh, I also wanted to ask you, do you have any interesting hopes for the new year since we're heading that way? Uh, 2020 is a big year for Oxfordians because that's celebrating the 100th anniversary of the publication of uh, Shakespeare Identified by by Thomas Loney. So we're going to have a big event in D.C. on March 4th, which is the day of the publication, and there will be celebrations all over the country at that time. I would encourage people to uh, read, look at the website, and uh, catch up on this because it is one of the most fascinating subjects. It's like it's a black hole that I found down some years ago, and I'm having a wonderful time down in there, and the, the energy that you gain from the insights you might have on into the author's mind when you consider that it was a nobleman hiding his identity and yet making, uh, you know, sometimes rather um, satirical comments on, on very powerful people. He had the same artistic license that the modern-day satirists have, and it's, mm. it's uh, really an exciting thing to experience that and to feel like you're getting something kind of original that you won't find in the Shakespeare editions that you buy at the bookstore. Well, not only is it lots of fun to talk to you about this authorship question, it's wonderful to talk to someone who retired from a very wonderful professional life as a physician and found true joy in a whole new field. Well, I have to tell you that emergency medicine, uh, which I practiced for 30 years, is a theatrical practice. That is to say, you're a performer. Mm. You have an audience. You have props. You (laughs) have a script. You have improvisational elements. You have break a leg. You have work in the pit, you know. The metaphors that are theatrical also apply to the culture of emergency medicine. And when I spoke in London at the Shakespeare, at the Shakespeare's Globe uh, as uh, on Shakespeare's medical knowledge, I presented my credentials as a physician who had lived in a culture very similar to theatrical culture. And one of the things that, that is true is that in medicine, we learn to do things by evidence-based judgment rather than eminence-based. That is to say, what I learned in school back in the 1960s did not apply to what my practice in the 2000s. And so I applied the same principles when I study literature, that I use evidence-based judgments. And I think the evidence suggests that there is a problem, Houston. (laughs) There is a a problem, Stratford. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, Dr. Showerman. It's just a real pleasure talking to you, and I wish you all the best in the new year. Thank you so much, Susanna. It's such a pleasure to be here, and uh, fair forward. Hmm. Will you share and subscribe? 